Good. Welcome. Welcome to all you who are watching the live stream or catching the later video. Thank you all for being here in person. It's great to have you. We just shared some pastoral updates and congregational updates. Um, and uh, you can get in touch with me or with us for more particulars, but just know that we prayed for members of our church family. And as I said on Sunday, it was great to celebrate Harold Knight's uh, 97th birthday this past Saturday. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Reed is going to come up and lead us as we he introduced last week, uh, but now we're going to dig in more uh, profoundly into God's self-revelation and who is God and what is God like, what are his characteristics, and move in that direction. Reed. Yeah, so last week, uh, could you do me a favor, Martin? Could you go hit overlay two on that pad? That's just so the people out there can see the slides here. But So we talked a little bit last week about natural revelation, special revelation, the difference between those things. Um, I thought about going back over some of that. I'm not. I think you guys probably get that. Um, but the, the reason I wanted to, to work on that and I did mention this last week, was some of the language that we're using, uh, some of the concepts that we're going to work with come from natural revelation and not directly from special revelation. Now, there are some things we're going to talk about tonight that we'll start in natural revelation, but then I'll, I'll go to the Bible and show you like where those actually are in the Bible. But one thing that's unique about the New Testament is that Paul, in particular, and certainly all the New Testament writers, are very comfortable borrowing language from Greek philosophy. Um, for example, we talk about God as immortal. That's certainly a concept that's in the Old Testament, that God is immortal. But immortality is something that the Greek pagan philosophers really built out and, and discussed in their discussion of who God is. So if you're familiar with the, the Greco-Roman world, there was a pantheon of Greek gods. You know, there was Zeus and Hades and all these gods. But what, what the philosophers, what people like Plato, people like Aristotle, um, were, were kind of working through and thinking through was the idea that, well, these gods aren't really gods, right? Not, not in like the true sense, because they die, they um, have torn wills, and this is something that Plato works through in, what's that, I think it's called Euthyphro, I may be wrong about that, but, um, and so the, the pagan philosophers, about, we're talking between 400 to 100 years before Christ, they've been working through this thing, and, and that's why, for example, when you come to Acts 17, which we will look at tonight, um, Paul sees the, the statue to the unknown God, the idol to the unknown God, and Paul is totally comfortable appropriating that and saying, we worship the unknown God. We worship this, you know, this greatest God that, that your philosophers say is real and say it's above the Greek and the Roman gods. We, that's the God we worship. And so this is actually part of the, when, when the Christians were being persecuted, this was part of the thing they appealed to is because they were called atheists by the Romans. And so they appealed to, to the Greek philosophers and said, your philosophers say that this is the true God, and that's the God that we worship. We don't worship the pantheon, we worship the one who is the true God. And so all, that's, all that context is in the background of the New Testament. And so when we come to the New Testament, that's certainly floating around in Paul's head. And 
even more when we come to like the creeds, the Nicene Creed, um, uses words like co-essential or, or co-substantial. The, the Greek word is homoousia. And so they're working from a paradigm of Greek thought and Greek philosophy because they believed that the Greeks were saying true things about the world and true things about how nature worked, true things about how God worked. And that same paradigm of Greek thought makes its way into um, the confessions. And so, for example, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that God is a being. And so we're going to talk about, one of the things we're going to talk about is what a definition of, of being is. But this, this whole philosophical paradigm that's coming out of Greek thought, Plato, Aristotle, is kind of the standard philosophical way of looking at the world for the West for 1,500 years, right, or more than that. That started to change with the Enlightenment, um, and the Enlightenment really focused on this radical skepticism. So Rene Descartes, for example, you've heard the phrase, I think, therefore I am, right? And so Descartes' point there is that the only thing that I can really know is that I exist because I'm thinking. And so he reasons to, to God from that. But it, it comes to, the, the point of focus comes from intelligibility of the world, like that we can understand how the world works by looking at it, and it, it starts to focus inward. And in fact, when you get to somebody like David Hume, who was a Scottish philosopher, David Hume believed that there was like no such thing as true intelligibility of cause. So, for example, let me... How did that bottle of water get there? This is not a trick question. I put it there, right? Well, David Hume, Scottish philosopher, Enlightenment philosopher, would say, you don't know that Reed put it there. They, because, yet yeah, maybe you saw Reed do it, but your senses aren't trustworthy. And what you see happen isn't, you know, something that can actually tell you something about the world, right? But, but Christians, and honestly all people, really, before, before this time, believed that the world was intelligible, right? We could make sense of things, right? And so this is, this is a radical departure from um, all of philosophy that went before it. And so you may not think that, like the answer was clear that I put that water bottle there. But a lot of that thought kind of infects our worldview. And so what we have to do and what, what's gonna happen tonight is we're gonna look at a philosophical concept and then we're going to look at how that relates to, to the doctrine of God, right? And so we're, we're actually going to start with being, what being is, and talk about how God is being, whether God is being, etc. Um, a lot of this will be, it will feel abstract, but you need to realize that when we talk about philosophical concepts, we talk about philosophy, we're talking about things that are like right in front of you. We're going we're gonna to use maybe some bigger words, than words you may not have heard before, but... Um, they're deal we're dealing with concepts that are like really concrete. <laughs> concepts that should be on some level obvious to us. And that, that's part of the struggle I think some people have with um, like Aristotelian philosophy, which is kind of the, the core of this, um, is, is thinking through, <laughs> this, this feels almost too obvious to, to be true, right? And so we're going to talk about a, a few of those things and we're going to look at um, how scripture speaks to those things. So the first thing we want to talk about is being. And so I have, a, I have a picture of my dog here. This is Lola. Um, she's a pound dog. She's very sickly. Um, but Lola is a being. 
So I'm gonna write in all caps because the college students make fun of my um, cursive because they say it's illegible. So, but, so being, well, first of all, what, what do you think a being is? Someone give me a, their, their best definition of being. Sentient, okay. Is, well, yeah, is a tree a being, for example? No, a tree is not a being, okay. <laughs> Any other thoughts on that? Any living thing, okay. Any other thoughts? Heartbeat, okay. Well, a tree doesn't have a heartbeat, right? So the, the general way of thinking through this is a being, which this makes sense if you think about being is to be, right? I am. And so being, we could say, is um, that, and this is going to make sense in just a second, that which is, okay? So there's two aspects to this. There's the that. So what is that? A dog, right? So we have a dog, and that dog, is it a real dog or a fake dog? It's a real dog, okay? So it's a thing that exists as a being, right? So, and I'm, I'm simplifying this a little bit, but this is the basic gist, right? No. <laughs> um, no. And I'm not, I'm not going to get into that. But uh, for our purposes, it's sufficient to say that a being is... So te technically, a water bottle is an artifact, right? It's something that, that humans create. Um, beings are natural, is one distinction I would make with that. Um, so I did not create Lola, right? <laughs> So, um, so that's, that's being. So Lola, her essence, that's what this is, essence, is dogginess, okay? My essence is human, right? So that's, that's the first element, essence, and then existence, right? Now this is this is something that um, Thomas Aquinas is kind of famous for explicating this more than anybody else had. But essence and existence are kind of the two pieces that come together to have a being, right? Um, and existence is the question, like in what sense does this water bottle exist, right? Um, it doesn't exist in um, a natural sense, right? My, I'm able to perceive that this is a water bottle, but I won't get into that. So. Um, but this is the simple that which is the essence and existence, the thatness of a thing, the what it is, and the the realness of a thing. Okay, does everybody follow me right here? Okay. So when we talk about God's essence and God's existence, we speak of God as God as a being. That's in the confession, right? So. God, in some sense, has an essence and an existence. So this is, this is where we have to make a distinction. When we talk about God, we can't speak the word to be univocally, right? So, for example, to use, we can use Lola again. 
Is that erased? Yes. So if I say Lola loves, I'm going to be conceited here, Lola loves Reed, right? Then I can say, I'm going to abbreviate Madeline's name, but that's Madeline loves Reed. And God loves Reed. Do I mean the same thing by love in each of those sentences? No, right? So when we, we talk about this is this is the idea of analogy, right? So when we talk about God, sometimes we talk about God in human terms, and those are like in, in sort of obvious metaphors. But sometimes we say true things about God that we can't fully grasp, right? So, we all know what love is, right? I think everybody in here is married. So, we have some sense of love, at least in that relationship, right? And we know that, of course, God loves. That's an obvious thing. It's in the scriptures. It's something that's a part of his nature. But we also know that love is not the same between a married couple and between God and his creation, or God and his people, right? And so the same concept applies when we talk about the being of God, right? We have this, it's, it's in some ways a human drawing out of how the world works. And we're applying that to God, but we have to understand that it doesn't work exactly right, right? And, and one, one way that it doesn't work is that, um, and, and we'll explain this in more detail in a minute, but God is simple. So... Um, God is not, God's essence and his existence are the same thing. So, is God God if God does not exist? No, right? If God doesn't exist, then he can't be God, right? That's an essential part of him. Am I still human if I don't exist? This is not, this is not a trick question, but... Am, am I still human if I don't exist. Like, if I, if I drop dead right now, is Reed still human? Yes, right? And so my existence in this form is not tied to what I am, right? So you can have a, the idea of human nature independent of any humans existing. And certainly God did, right? God had an idea of human nature before there were ever any humans, Right, and so, but you can't have an idea of God without God, right? Are there any questions on that? That might be a little mind whirling, but so when we talk about God as a being, we, we can talk about God having essence. We can talk about God having existence, but it doesn't work in exactly the same way that it works for us, right? Because God is totally other. Totally different. Okay. So any questions about being? Any questions about the idea of analogy that we can say, the, use the same word, mean different things? Well, we mean the same thing, but it's a matter of proportion. Does that make sense? Okay. So next, we'll talk about being. And by the way, what we're doing is we're working toward the attributes of God, and eventually... I'll keep introducing these things, and eventually you'll find yourself, we're talking about, 
you know, attributes of God that we would find pretty explicitly in Scripture. So the next thing we want to talk about is causality. So what is a cause? That's my old slides. Um, what, does it, what does it mean for something to be a cause? Right. So it's um, something, and, you know, we're going to, again, the problem with part of this is that this is almost too close to our brains. <laughs> like, on some level, this is just completely obvious. But we have a hard time wrapping our heads around it because it's, it's so obvious, right? So something that leads to something. And so, again, what's the cause of the water bottle being there? I put it there, right? So, and we'll get to this in a second, but one of the central things we need to understand about God is that God is uncaused. God is, um, there's nothing before God, right? So everything that we experience depends on something else. Your existence depends on something else, right? This, the fact that there's pulpits here, there's buildings here, that depends on something else. Your presence here depends on you having driven here, right? Does that make sense? And so if we keep asking why and we keep going back all the way to the beginning, what's the first answer? God, right? Now, what happens if you say, well, why is God there? There's no answer. And so we'll talk about that more in just a second. But, and this is, this is some more of this, this philosophy, but is everybody clear on what a cause is? I think this one's pretty straightforward. So, um, So when we talk about cause, Aristotle gives us, gives us four causes. So generally, and this is kind of what the Enlightenment has moved toward. This is a, a moderate kind of Enlightenment. The, we generally only think of two causes in the modern frame of mind. But the doctrine of God relies on, in part, a denial of God's having these four things. So it's important that we have all four when we're talking about, about God's um, self-sufficiency. So, and I'm going to use Lola as an example again. So the first is the material cause. Any guess at what that might be about? It's not a trick question. It's, it's about the materials that it's, that it's made of. Just say, what is this thing made of? So the material cause of Lola, what is, what is Lola made of? Cells, bones, hair. And we're fully aware of the hair. So um, dog parts is what I'll say. And we could go even further. We could say that, you know, technically she's made up of atoms and molecules and whatnot. And technically that's made up of quarks. And So you could go all the way back. But material is the stuff, right? Um, so what is it? None of these are perfect examples. But we'll use the water bottle again. What is this water bottle? What's the material cause of this water bottle? Yeah, that sort of thing. So that, that's pretty easy to wrap our heads around. That's something that um, we kind of think of naturally in, in the modern world. The second cause 
is the formal calls. Now, gross oversimplification, but <laughs> the formal cause is basically the same thing as the essence, the whatness of the thing. So the formal cause of Lola is dog, right? There's this idea of what a dog is, this essence of a dog, and in this particular dog, that's what it comes out, right? The whatness of a thing. So the material cause an answers what the question, what is this made of? The formal cause answers the question, what is it, right? The third is the efficient cause. This answers the question, who made it? So again, there's all sorts of, we can go back however many layers you want. So in some sense, Lola's parents made her in some sense, right? But we can also go all the way back and say, well, ultimately, God made her. But for the sake of, of this illustration, we'll just say um, her dog parents. Right. Sorry, that's kind of squished. So material cause, what's it made of? Formal cause, what is it? Efficient cause, who made it? And finally, we have the final cause, And this answers the question, what is it for? What is it for? So you can see in our modern way of thinking about all sorts of things, why we might reject this as a, as a cause, as, a, as something that... Because Aristotle is basically saying that everything has a purpose. And you can see why modern people would reject this and why, based on the Enlightenment thinking and stuff, this would be not something we accept. But it's also a hard question to answer sometimes. So, what are dogs for? And what is this particular dog for? What's the purpose of it? I mean, on, like, there's simple stuff, like she runs off snakes in my backyard. Companionship, right? Maybe even love, like I said earlier, right? And so there's all sorts of things. Ultimately, and we'll get to some scripture that talks about this, ultimately, the purpose of the dog is the glory of God ultimately. But we can say, I'll, I'll just use the snakes as an example. So her purpose, at least in my yard, is to run off snakes. So we have a material cause. What's it made of? The formal cause. What is it? The efficient cause. Um, who made it? And the final cause, what's it for? So these are, these are the four causes. So what I want to do now is we're going to open up to Genesis 1. And my contention is that you can find all four of these things in Genesis 1. And I'll also cite a couple other scriptures if you're interested in that too. So first, look at Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Are there any causes there? What, what question gets answered there? Efficient. Who made it? That's, that gets answered there. So we see this first cause, the efficient cause, being, um, being answered in Genesis 1-1. I look at Genesis 1-2. 
the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, do you think we see any causes there? Yes. So, so this, the earth was formless and void. The, the formlessness and void, in, in a sense, is what the world is made out of, right? Um, another place you could see it, if you just jump over to um, verse, chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And so we see the material cause. What is Adam made out of? Right, and the efficient. <laughs> he's made out of dust and he's made by God. Right, and so these are pretty easy to see. I underlined the formal cause accidentally, but yeah, <laughs> whatever. Um, next, let's jump down to uh, verse 21 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 21. So God's working through the days, he's creating things. And we'll actually start in verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creature and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So, which one do you see there? Yes. 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 So there's, what's happening is there are some animals that are not like other animals, right? And so um, we answer, it's not like we answer the question like what is that, well it is, right? So we don't answer like that. We say it's a dog, which is different from a cat, which is different from a cow, which is different from a fish. Right? And so you see these discrete forms, these discrete whatnesses happening, discrete things being divided out and created. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. And finally, the formal cause. Or, excuse me, finally, the final cause. <laughs> so look in uh, Genesis 1, verse 12. This is the third day. And verse 12 says, The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. So there's the uh, form again. And trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And so we see what's the purpose of these plants, what's the purpose of these trees. It's for them to grow and produce seed and reproduce, right? At least that's one purpose. And so that answers the question of what, where the final cause is. So... In Genesis 1, you have the material cause. You see God creating out of things. He creates man out of dust. He creates uh, the world out of formlessness and void. You see the formal cause where God is uh, dividing up creation. He's creating animals that are in discrete buckets, right? And he's making things, things that are unique unto themselves. You see the efficient cause where God is the one actually creating. And you see the final cause that God actually creates for a purpose. And that these things are called to something, even 
man. And we see man's call in Genesis 2. He's called to tend, to keep the garden, right? So we see all four of these calls. Are there any questions at this point about, about those? Okay. So what about God? Well, um, God, we, speak, we can speak of God's, this is a big word, but it's a, it's a good word. We speak of God's, I'm disconnected. We speak of God's aseity. So what this basically means, it's a fancy Latin word for um, self-sufficiency, in himselfness, right? We'll just have to go without. But, um, so, aseity is a fancy word. It comes from Latin, ase, um, in himself, basically. But, that's correct, isn't it? Ase. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I don't trust my Latin. But, but basically what that means is that God is free from these causes. God is uncaused. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Yes, thank you. <laughs> A-S-E-I-T-Y. And so it means that God is free from cause, right? And so aseity is the first true attribute that we get uh, of God here and as we're working through these. And you'll see there's actually somewhat of a logical order to these. And so you can see how we've gone from God as, a, as uncaused to God as assay, God is of himself, in himself. Um, and we'll move forward to that. The next one is a hint. The next one is immutability. And we may not get, that, get to that one tonight, but there's a logical order to these as we, as we move through. But let's uh, turn to Job. Um, you can go ahead and turn to Job 41. I'm going to read a couple of verses earlier, but I don't want you to jump around too, too much. But look at Job uh, 41, verse 11. Um, if we look in, I'm going to give you a couple other references. You can write these down if you want, but... In Job 22, verses 2 and 3, Eliphaz is speaking. And so remember, I'm going to cite a couple of these. And the reason I'm having you turn to chapter 41 is because God speaks in chapter 41. And so we know he's trustworthy. Eliphaz and Elihu are maybe not. But I would say that the two things we're going to pull from uh, these untrustworthy friends are actually true things about God. So uh, chapter 22, verse 2 says, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? So Eliphaz is saying to Job, what does it matter to God? You're not adding anything to him. This is chapter 22. You're not adding anything to him. If, if, you, if you're righteous, if you're evil, whatever happens, whatever you do, you're not changing God. You're not adding anything into him. God is totally of himself and in himself. Right? The next one is... Um, Chapter 35, chapter 35, verses 6 and 7. Again, this is Elihu. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? Verse 6. And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? So same concept here. Elihu's saying, what, what are you going to do that's going to change God, that's going to affect God? Right? He's totally unaffectable because he's uncausable, right? <laughs> so, 
Again, this idea that God is totally imminent, totally above everything, totally um, free from effect, particularly of effect from us, right? We, do, we don't have the, the freedom to affect God in any way. And finally, in Job, before we turn to the big passage in Acts, Job 41.11, this is God speaking. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And so God, and there's an excellent implication here of, of what it means to be say, to be self-sufficient. But he's saying, you, nobody has given anything to me. I am the ultimate giver and I give everything, right? And so ultimately, for example, even in our worship, where we're giving something to God, we're singing to God, right? Ultimately, he's the one that gives it to himself. It comes from him, ultimately. He gives us voices, he gives us words, right? But he also says, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, right? And so there's also a sense in which um, God's self-sufficiency points to his ultimate authority over everything. Because he's the first cause of everything, because he's the one that makes everything happen, he is ultimately the one who is in authority over all things. So that's Job. That's just interesting because this is a this is a concept that appears over and over again in Job. And Job, uh, we, we think about Job a lot in terms of the the doctrine of suffering, but there's actually a really rich doctrine of God because you know basically Job and his friends get a lot of stuff wrong about God, and he comes in and you know smashes their dreams about their philosophizing, but. Um, so if you're, if you're ever interested in the doctrine of God, it'd be interesting to, to do a study on Job through that. But. So next, let's turn to Acts 17. And this is, this is like the key passage uh, for understanding, particularly in, with reference to this Greek philosophy stuff. But also understanding as we begin to get into the doctrine of, into, into God's attributes, to understanding how those attributes all fit together. So, um, Paul... He's gone to Athens. Athens is the seat of this philosophy, of this thinking. And so he goes to Athens. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the marketplace, and he starts preaching. And so they invite him up to the Areopagus. And this is what he says. I'll start in verse 22, chapter 17. The Areopagus, by the way, is, is a place where this sort of conversation happened, Right? This is the place where you would talk about God and, you know, talk about big ideas. Um, it's like maybe a university is supposed to be nowadays, although maybe that's not the case anymore. But So verse 22, Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live 
and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. By the way, if you look at uh, verse 29, um, just to continue, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, there's that word, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So there's the, the divine being language there. So what we have is an explanation of who God is. He's above everything. He gives everything. He's only ever a giver, never a taker. And he's, he's not subject to humanity. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands, so we, we can't confine God to a temple. And if you think about the Jewish temple, for example, even the, the temple that God commanded to be built for himself, it wasn't that, that Solomon built the temple and put God in there, right? How did God get in the temple? He came down, right? He gave himself, right? And the same thing, God, we have clear commands, and the second commandment tells us not to build Im- images, idols, right? It's because God can't be created like that. God is uncreated, uncaused, right? So um, let's talk about, and we can look at this passage and give us some answers to this. But remember the four causes, right? Material cause, formal cause, efficient cause, and final cause. And so what we want to do is when we're talking about aseity, God's self-sufficiency, God is in himself and of himself. The, the typical way of understanding this is as a denial of those four causes, that God is, has no material cause. God has no efficient, uh, efficient cause. God has no formal cause. God has no final cause. So we'll go through those one by one. First, um, God is immaterial. So when you ask the question, what is God made of, what's your answer? You, well, you can't really say nothing, right? But you, you can't say anything, right? <laughs> so um, God is spirit. That's the um, language we, we use confessionally. Um, I'm thinking we, we use that creedally too. But um, yeah. So God is spirit. That means God doesn't have a body. So for example, we had a question about this, but um, we, we use male pronouns for God. We say he, him, right? But um, God doesn't have a body. God created gender. So gender is not something that's even like, you know, we, we speak of God in masculine terms because that's what the Bible gives us to do. But it's, it would be wrong to say, you know, either God is a man or God is a woman. Now, of course, God condescended and became a man. But God in his being as God is not, doesn't have a body, doesn't have fingers or toes. Which, by the way, what do you do with passages like that that say God places his hand on you, right? Or God, um, you know, the, the, the Hebrew idiom for anger is the, to be long in the nose, right? So what does it say when we, we talk about God's nose, God's face? What, what's, what's going on there, do you think? Any ideas? Right. It's, we understand what a hand does. Now, God doesn't, of course God doesn't have a hand, Maybe that's not obvious, but of course God doesn't have a hand. Um, but we, we talk about a hand because we understand what a hand does, what a hand um, means to us. And so 
God, as he reveals himself to us, can use those images, things that he's created, to show us himself. So God is totally immaterial, right? And so this is why, for example, we don't make idols. It's because God can't be confined to that. God's above those things, right? God can't be confined in stone and in wood and in precious metals. He's, he's above that. He's non-physical. And the implication, if we, if we fashion an idol, the implication is that we are somehow causing God, right? And that, that's part of what's happening if we say, you know, we're going to build an idol. And which, by the way, that's, that's why the Reformed faith has historically been very anti-images of, of Christ, images of anything, really. But, um, so, by the way, the fact that we have a cross, if you, you know, did that in 17th century Scotland, they would run you off. Like, this is, we're, this is very radical for Reformed um, thinking. But, so we don't make idols because God is immaterial. God has no material cause. He's, you can't answer the question, what is God made of? So, second question, and this is really where we're stretching analogy, um, is the formal cause. What is God? We can say some intelligent things about that. And this is, again, we're talking about analogy, proportionality. We can say some true things about God without totally understanding and grasping them. And so when we talk about being, because I said earlier that, that essence is essentially the same thing as, as again, this is an oversimplification, but the formal cause and essence are kind of the same thing. Um, we can't say that about God. So we can talk about God's essence, but we've got to understand that we're, we're not talking about essence in the same way we think about it on this level. It's totally otherworldly. And so there's a sense in which you can answer the question, what is God? And I actually believe that's, a, that's the way one of our catechism questions is phrased. <laughs> and, and there's an answer there. Um, but all of those answers are gesturing at something that we can't totally wrap our heads around. Right? God is totally above us to the point that we can't, we can't conceive of a form of God. Right? In the way that we can... Yes. <laughs> yes. There's, there, we can't answer that question, right? So that's, that's probably the hardest answer um, of those. Now, those are actually the easy ones um, in terms of, um, well, actually, those, those are the hard ones in terms of understanding the cause of the God because those are intrinsic, right? For me to be made of something, for me to be something, that's, that's intrinsic to me. That's built in. But other things are extrinsic. So the efficient cause has, requires an outside agent, an outside cause, as well as the final cause that requires somebody, an intelligent person somewhere else making the decision. So um, the third, uh, the efficient cause, that should be pretty obvious. Who made God? Nobody. <laughs> God, is, God doesn't have a maker. And fourth, this one's a little bit harder to answer. What's God for? No, and you're catching on the fact that there is no answer to this question. But <laughs> in a sense, God is for himself. And that's everything that God creates ultimately is for his glory. But we also don't want to say that God is self-caused, that God is somehow like producing himself. And so the best thing we can say is that God has no final cause. Right? So God is immaterial. God doesn't have a form that we can wrap our heads around. God is uncreated. 
God doesn't have somebody behind him creating him. And God has no purpose outside of himself. Right? Does everybody does anybody have any objections to that? Believe it or not, so what, what I'm talking about, and this is just if you want to Google this later, I'm taking a position of classical theism, which I'm not 100% you know, nailed on, the classical theism. I'm, the broad strokes of it I'm, I'm good with. Um, but lots of modern evangelicals have kind of moved different directions through, through this. And so believe it or not, not everybody totally agrees with all that. So um, another thing I'll, I'll mention about, about essence so, well, they're still up there. Okay, so we have this dog. Part of the reason you know it's a dog is because you have a, a sense of what a dog is, right? You've seen, you've seen them before. You've, you've been around them, right? And so the essence of something, the, the substance of something, is what we perceive with the, the, the mind. So if I hold this water bottle, I am technically touching plastic, right? The raw data doesn't mean anything, but my interpretation of it tells me what it is. It's a water bottle, right? And so because essence, because substance is something that we, we perceive with our mind, who can grasp God, right? So this, this is going back to the formal cause thing. Nobody can grasp God. Nobody can actually, we can, we can get raw data about God and we can make some sense of it, but we don't have the ability to like fully wrap our heads around it. And so technically, um, that's another reason there's no formal cause. So, are there any questions about that, about aseity? And again, this is, um, we'll actually probably turn back to Acts 17 several times to look at some of this stuff. But any questions at this point? This is the stopping point. Here's, here's a hint for next week. Aseity, self-sufficiency, God being in and of himself, implies that God does not change. God is immutable is the technical word. And so we'll talk about immutability and we'll move on to some other attributes and um, probably we'll talk about Trinity two weeks from now. So, But are there any final questions, comments, concerns? Let me repeat that for the. Yeah, let, let me repeat this for the video. But is this something that gives you comfort, or is this something that makes you? Um, is this a? Do you have a positive reaction, a negative reaction? Is this, like you said, good news or bad news? So, any thoughts on that? Man, <laughs> before you make a decision, you want to know the whole story. Yeah. What do you think? Both? Both? Why? That's an interesting answer.
particularly. And this is a little mind bending, but we'll talk about probably next week. We'll talk about um, God being eternal. And that's another thing. Like God is timeless, and a lot of times we think of eternity in terms of sort of, you know, it goes infinitely either way or whatever. But eternity is like actually above time, right? So like God, God, it's not like God existed forever in the past, right? There's just no beginning point. Is that there's no points ever, right? And God stands above all that. And from God's perspective, He looks down at history. Yes, it's always now it's just one big thing, right? Which is hard for us. We'll talk about that in more detail, but also we'll talk about this more when we get to the Trinity too. When we talk about what it means to be saved, it means that you're being involved in this, right? You're, you're actually, this is, this is one of the glorious things about salvation is you actually, in a way, are participating in the Trinity, in the relationships between God, right? That's what it means to have union with Christ. And Jesus says, the Father is in me and I am in him, and so if you are in Christ, where are you? You're in the Father, right? And so the doctrine of God paints this picture of a God that's so big and mighty and huge. But at the same time, God's redemption brings us like into the very center of that. We get to participate with that. So, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to pray, and we can uh, head out. Father, thank you for your provision for us. You've given us the ability to gather before you. You've given us the ability to, to approach you. You're, you're unapproachable light, and yet you, you still give us your light, and you give us the opportunity to come near to you. Father, we thank you for your, your grandness, and even in the midst of that, that you would allow us to, to take a glimpse at that, that you would give us unveiled faces to see your glories and to be transformed by them. Father, would you use these truths that we know about you to strengthen our faith in you, to strengthen our commitment to you, to strengthen our desire to see your name glorified, and to, uh, to see obedience, to see your people be worshiping you and loving you and living out their faith in you for your glory. Because your glory is the end of all things. Father, would you bless us uh, tonight and this week as we go on? Would you show us your glory each and every day as we um, come to worship you um, each Lord's Day, but each day in our homes and in our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There may be two buttons, Martin. I, th I think I sent you a, a bad picture. <laughs>